The following content may contain elements that are not suitable for some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to Corporate Quitter. I'm really excited about today's episode because my guest that I have on today, we got to know each other pretty well because she was a client of mine, but I've always known about her too, but I was like lurking in the background, like following her. So it's cool when you meet these people like for real, like kind of over Zoom and getting to know them. So her name is Daniela Flores. She's a software engineer, freelance writer, and the founder of I Like to Dabble, a financial and career literacy business aimed toward helping neurodivergent LGBTQ plus folks build wealth. They also host Remote Work Bestie, a brand new podcast challenging the way we work. When they aren't knee deep in research, writing, or ranting about the ways corporate and capitalism sucks, because it does, you can find them hiking with their wife or laying in bed of cats, which I also relate to because I am a cat fiend, which is something like when we originally connected, I was like, yes, my people, like, yes, more cats people we need it thank you so much for coming on the podcast and also thank you for launching your podcast and your blog too because I know a ton of people who are dying to be in remote work and there's not a lot of resources available that aren't gate kept and you're kind of an open book in that sense so I appreciate you doing what you're doing and being here oh thank you so much for having me I love your podcast you know I started listening to it when a little bit around the time I found you Obviously, I've been creeping on you for a while through socials, but and you kind of have for me too. But like, can you get into a bit of a backstory of like what how I like to dabble came about? Because I know that you've been a remote worker for a while, but what was the initial push for you to actually do blogging? Right, because blogging is a huge lift for you to do. Why why did you choose that as opposed to other things or just doing a side hustle at all? Yeah. So at the time, I was looking for a creative outlet, and I also was going through back to back layoffs. So I started. Right after I got laid off from a company called Hudson Bay Company, after that layoff, I was kind of looking for a creative outlet at the same time I was working at this government contract. And it's also government contract was for the VA. So it was really slow moving and I had a lot of extra time during the day. So that's kind of why I started it. And at the same time, I started like doing art therapy and therapy writing. So I wanted to explore writing more. And I started the blog in like a journalistic sense where I was talking more about my own experiences. And then I started reading about like making money blogging because I wanted a way to at least cover the expenses with a blog. So that's like hosting, email list, the domain registration fee, all that stuff. So back then I was started looking into monetizing a blog and Pinterest was basically my resource for it back then. So I looked into adding ads to the blog and affiliates for just like a starter. So I did that. And at the same time, I started getting some like low level freelance writing gigs. These were like paying $50 an article, $100 an article. It wasn't a lot, but it helped me get better at writing and also get familiar with the way that these publications target certain audiences and how they market their content. So I used some of that education in my own blog and started doing search engine optimization research, basically how you get traffic from Google and other search engines. I'm using that for Pinterest as well, using kind of the same concept of SEO. So you're found on Pinterest and you can bring in traffic that way. I didn't really start with any other social media at the time just because I didn't have the capacity for it. But yeah, that's kind of how it came about. But at the same time, it was like I was kind of documenting my own financial journey, even though then I did not really know much. I had a ton of debt no savings, very minimal like investments in an old 401k, that sort of thing. So I was just kind of talking about these things I was getting familiar with. And then I honed it on side hustles since that was the majority of the things I ended up talking about was all these ways I was trying to make money to pay off these things. And I really honed in on that subject and like the career subject because everything else I found on Google or all these other platforms was like stuff from you know, white guys, older white guys, or it doesn't Dave really... Ramsey. Dave Ramsey. Dave <laughs> Ramsey. Like, like, don't get your Starbucks. <laughs> right. Or these like tech bros that like make, you know, mid six figures. And they're like, oh, I was able to retire early. And it's like, yeah, because 
I mean, you had no it shit. set up from day one. So, so it's like, you know, just talking about a different journey. Um, and yeah, it's been like a total evolution kind of process since then because the blog has kind of like gone through all these different phases of like finance and then finance and side hustles and then finance, side hustles and careers and now remote work. So I didn't realize that you started doing like the guests, contri- like contributing to articles before you actually were like, oh, let me take the blog and do like the research and actually make it like a formal blog. How did, how did you get into article writing? Is that difficult? I mean, it seems really intimidating, honestly, because I've thought about it as well. Yeah. So I actually got into it from doing guest posts because when I was researching like how to basically appear on Google and increase your domain authority so you are ranked higher on these search engines was getting your links and your name on other blogs and other websites. So I reached out to, for instance, I reached out to The Financial Diet a long time ago. Um, you know, Chelsea Fagan, who owns The Financial Diet and The Financial Confessions, um, I reached out to them for a guest post and they're like, oh, we actually pay for our guest posts. It's $50. I'm like, cool. So I did a couple of those. So at the same time, I got my links and my name on that website, but I also got paid for it. Usually for guest posts for blogging, they're actually free. So like if you wanted to post on a site like The Penny Hoarder or something for them, I don't think they pay for it or like a big blogger site. So I guess like if you were to do a post for like the Millennial Money blog or something like that, they probably wouldn't pay you for it because it's called a guest blog post. And then you can include several links to your website. And also you can include those links to specific keywords that you're targeting on your blog for traffic. So I've done a couple of guest posts where they were unpaid. And then I've done, you know, ones that were paid. But the guest posts always pay less than like actual articles. So I moved up from that to articles. And I started really ghostwriting for... It was a financial blog. It's not around anymore, but that was like my real first article client. And then I did the Plutus Awards, which is like my first long-term one where I did like over a year writing for them. And then from there, like contributor articles on the larger sites really helped me get freelance clients from there too. I always see guest posts on certain blogs, but I didn't realize that those people like reach out and they're like, hey, I want to do a guest post. I thought it was more of like, you know, I, I mean, I know it's a referral game, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to help you. You help me, right? Be kind of, it's kind of like doing podcast swaps. You're like, okay, we're both tapping into our network and, you know, sharing it that way. But I didn't realize that you can just reach out and be like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this article. It contributes to this topic XYZ that you have. This is what I'm thinking. Let me know if you're interested and go about it that way. That's pretty, that's, I, I that's interesting. So for the like major, like, you know, the CNBC, well, I don't know about that, but Forbes, right? Like all these different money magazine, things like that. They were just direct outreach or was referrals again from clients that you've had or like your name being passed around because you've done it so much? Well, for Forbes, I've never written for them. I was featured in Forbes from my friend Delianne who writes, she's now a contributor at Forbes, but like the big ones like CNBC, CNET, like Time Next Advisor that I wrote for last year, that was actually, they reached out to me because they were looking for new voices. So I wrote a couple, I think it was like four, it was five articles for them. And then since then, Next Advisor, their contract ended with Time. And now I think there was CNET. So I also wrote a couple of articles for CNET because it was under the Time Next Advisor or just Next Advisor like umbrella. Um, They kind of go around to different money websites every couple of years to and it's like spreading this message of like um, unheard financial stories, you know, diversity, stuff like that. Um, so that one, they reached out to me for CNET. I reached out to them and it's because I got the email from my friend Janice of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. And I basically asked her, I'm like, oh, how did you get to write a contributor article for them? And she's like, reach out to this email. So since then I've written like, I don't know, it's been like over 10 articles, but a lot of them aren't there anymore because a lot of, there used to be a vertical called CNBC Acorns, which is no longer there. And a lot of those articles are, oh, I remember have disappeared. Acorns. Yeah. So, yeah. um, 
the thing with contributor articles with those websites too when they have those verticals is that they are like yearly or a couple of years and when you write those articles you do have to save those samples because eventually they might be gone a lot of mine are gone from some of those websites so i always keep a good google drive of everything i write because nothing you know there's no guarantee that your work will stay on those websites um, another one was like BuzzFeed. I'm a BuzzFeed contributor. And the same thing with that is like I reached out to them and I got their email from my friend Athena from the Money Smart Latina. That's so cool. I didn't realize it was that easy. Like I feel like a lot of these oh, things super easy. think that they're so into. OK, so maybe I'm going to do this now because I feel like lately I've been on a blogging buzz and I'm like, oh, I need to know all the deets. Like I, I two years ago, I tried to do a blog and ended up with the podcast because I was like, I can't jam all my information in a blog post like in my personality. I can't do it. But now I'm finding that I want to be a bit quieter other than the oversharing. And so I've been attracted to the blog stuff. And now I'm like, oh my God, what do I, what do, I do with this, right? How do I generate more traffic? And, and right, SEO is a whole monster, which I know is like, if you don't have SEO, it's like you're, it's like a fart in the wind. Like no one's going to hear it because you know what I mean? Kind of like it goes through the web and it's never seen. So do you have any tips on how to generate more blog traffic? Like, is it doing those contributor articles or are there other things that you're like, oh my God, you need to know this? So doing those contributor articles really helped me with my domain authority and the websites like CNBC, BuzzFeed. I think all of them actually let me, you know, include as many links as I wanted to my, to my blog because it was the resource they wanted to include in those articles. But a way to get traffic to your blog like brand new for me was Pinterest because Pinterest is it's easy. There are people that come there for budgeting and side hustle tips a lot. Their finance category actually does pretty well. I mean, of course, it's not as big as DIY or recipes, like the things that people come to Pinterest for the most or like um, home improvement kind of stuff. But it's there. And that's where I found it. So I'm like, since this is where I hang out and the people that I want to target probably hang out here too, I'm going to put a bunch of my articles on Pinterest, which means, you know, designing those pins. Back then I used a software called PicMonkey and I found Canva was better. So I switched to Canva um, and you can create pins on there using their templates or create new ones. I really liked, you know, that whole design element. Um, I've never been a designer, but I like designing, you know, and painting and drawing. So I kind of, I looked at how the other, other people formatted their pins and what did well. And also looking a little bit into color theory, you know, and psychology around that. And then designed those pins. And I created several different pins for, you know, I only had a couple of blog posts up. Back then, too, their uh, blogging Facebook groups were a little bit bigger. So I could easily tap into those communities, you know, versus now people don't use Facebook as much, or at least Facebook groups yeah. as they used to. Twitter is great for like networking with other writers and other bloggers. The, I guess, like financial community on Twitter used to be a little bit stronger since, you know, a certain person took over Twitter. <laughs> And a lot yeah. of things gets a I lot of things a dumpster like, fire over there now. Oh, it's a dumpster <laughs> fire. Like things pop up that it's like, I don't, I don't follow this person. I don't even care about this. Why is this coming up? Anyway, I didn't use Instagram until like maybe two years ago. I like really stayed away from it because also like people don't really click away from Instagram. When TikTok came out, it like gave me a huge boost of traffic. But now not so much, I guess, because people, I guess, have gotten into a certain. It's not the sexy new thing. Yeah. Have you tried Lemonade yet or no, not yet? So my virtual assistant was telling me about this and I downloaded it, but I haven't played with it yet. Okay, good. I haven't yeah. even, I think I have like two things up on it that are just like a set of nail, like press on nails for yeah. me and like a painting I did. And of course I was just doing it because like I'm almost tra treating it as like what Instagram used to be, which was like sharing right. shit that you actually liked and yeah. like Pinterest, same thing versus TikTok and even Instagram is like, it's very calculated, which almost to the point that you don't like it anymore. So Lemonade, I think it's going to be huge for like UGC creators and probably writers and yeah. stuff, but you know. Well, it doesn't hurt, right? At least get your handle. Right. And writers right now need somewhere to go because Twitter used to be the writer's hangout. And now... Yeah, which is a bummer. I'm like, yeah. fuck, I really... Now I can use Twitter because I have so much to talk about and so many things to tweet. And it's like 
garbage now, which sucks. <laughs> it's garbage, yeah. Doing search engine optimization for those search engines like Google and Bing, but I mean, just doing it for Google, that's going to cover the rest of them. A lot of the time, too, when you're targeting keywords on Google, those same keywords are probably going to end up being those top search keywords on things like YouTube or Pinterest or anything else with a search engine. So I use a tool for anyone listening. It's called Keywords Everywhere. I think it's called Keywords Everywhere. So it shows me any on any website I'm on, it shows me um, the stats for how many people search for a certain keyword, how difficult it is and related keywords. So I love that. Um, you know, I have a YouTube too, but that doesn't give me any traffic. There's like two tutorials on there and just shorts, you know, um, but a lot of my, most of my traffic now comes from Google, Pinterest, now Instagram, just because of my presence there now versus the beginning and um, referral traffic in my email list. So referral traffic is like going to be those guest posts, you have your links on those guest posts or, you know, contributor articles or like any website that features you for anything. So like anytime a website features you, ask them to include your link. And then better yet, if you have a certain resource that like goes hand in hand with what they're featuring you for, ask them to link to that specific resource instead. And then if they can, put it on a specific keyword set that you're trying to target. Because there, like right then, that domain authority from that website is going to boost your domain authority and as well boost your article like in that specific ranking for that keyword just with that one feature. Interesting. Okay, I'm learning a lot. This is good. This is good. I'm sorry, guys. I'm biased. I'm asking questions for myself. but <laughs> Oh, so ask them all. What is, what's your perspective on ads on websites? Because I know it's a great moneymaker when you have the traffic to do it. But I also know as a consumer, like it's ugly and like, oh my God, it's so frustrating when you're trying to like load up a recipe. And I'm like, I can't even scroll because ad choices is flooding my fucking screen. Like I'm going to throw this against the wall. Like fuck your recipe. Oh, yeah. So like the recipe websites, the way they make money, the majority of the money that they make is from ads or sponsorships or, you know, affiliates. Uh, but the way they structure them has changed so much in the years because, you know, when you used to search for recipe, it would come up. But now you have mm -hmm. to read like a whole story and they'll have like the recipe at the bottom. And then like at the very, very bottom, they have the recipe card, which is what I always want. I want the recipe card, which is like the jump to recipe button yeah. at the top. I'm like, I don't right. care about your grandma. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> because the recipe. Yeah, and that's because the ads, like how many ads you can put in one blog post means more impressions, more possible mm -hmm. clicks, so they're going to make more money. Um, and then a lot of those, the blogs that make the most amount of ad money seem to be the recipe blogs too, because I think the types of ads they're able to serve from that content just happen to be bigger revenue drivers. So like the ones on my blog, I use Mediavine. So I Mediavine you can apply to when you get, back then it was 25,000 sessions a month. Now I think it's 50,000. But you should still apply if you're below that because I applied and I was barely at 25,000 sessions and they still took me. And I know other people that they, they fall right below the requirement and they still take them just because they like the content on the blog and they think ads will do well there. Like, what does that mean, the sessions? Is it kind of like, is it just views or is it like actual just one unique person poking through? So on like Google Analytics, you'll have your page views, you'll have sessions spent. So like a session is when a user goes to a web page and all of the things that's done in that one session on the web page. So they could have like 10 page views that came from them, but that's all within one session. So if they leave the website and then come back, that's another session. Got it. Okay. And then also on Google Analytics, you'll have like users, unique users or um, returning users as well. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. So okay, cool. To go back with ads, uh, so in the beginning I used Google AdSense, which is trash. <laughs> but regardless, you'll have to be approved for Google Ad Manager to use any other ad 
publisher ad network. So when I was able to get into Mediavine, I still had to show like, here's my Google ad manager login. And they link that with your ads because I think everything, it just runs from Google, all these ads like mm -hmm. on the internet. So it's like, okay. And I really like Mediavine because they let me filter out the ads that I don't want to appear. They also help oh, me. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And they have like this functionality where when a certain like when there's certain ads that don't really match up to your website because you have a lot of things filtered out like me, like I don't show any political stuff, gambling stuff. I don't think I show any religion. stuff. Like I don't show anything that would be like influencing a user to do something that they didn't yeah. come to my website for. So for those, when I filter out a lot of things, sometimes the ad placement on there doesn't really have anything to show. So instead you can show things like for certain causes. So back when COVID-19 was, you know, taken over, there were things that would pop up for like donating to certain funds back then. Now I have, um, you know, very pro LGBTQ, like pro trans, pro queer stuff that pops up and, you know, pride coming along the way. I know that when you think about, okay, I don't want to show anything like political or gambling. People could think, oh, well, that's political showing like queer or trans content. It's like, no, because that's my existence. So that's yeah. not really political. Everybody else has made it political. Heterosexuality isn't political. So I don't know why homosexuality is or, you know, people's gender identity. But so I digress. But I like Mediavine because they are really ethical with the choices they give bloggers and publishers for the ads that they want to show on their website. I like that they give the option to make it about like a fund to donate to if there's nothing to fill there because that's something that I don't mind seeing. It's not like, oh, I need another pair of joggers. Like it's something that's actually making a difference. Yeah. So stemming away from, so we're talking about money, right? So making money from the ads, making money from contributing to articles and even affiliate marketing, like, which also I'm curious, do you make a decent amount with affiliate marketing? But also yeah. just piggyback off that, like what are the other ways that the business brings in money? Because I know sometimes you do partnership stuff, like what's, what's like the whole ecosystem look like? Yeah. So I do also do affiliate marketing with a couple of companies that I partner with. Some of them are smaller apps with smaller like sign on little affiliate kickback. One of those is like fetch rewards, which is like, I use it for scanning receipts all the time. And I love how I can get like a random $10 gift card to Amazon, or you can do like a payout if you want. So I'm like an affiliate for them and I'll get like maybe $2 for a sign up, which isn't much. But then at the same time, I use, um, I'm also an affiliate for Sitbank for their high yield savings account, which is a great high yield savings account. And so from that, I will get, I think it's 250 a sign up. So like, oh, nice. I will do like little campaigns just for that. Cause it, you know, high yield savings account, especially for entrepreneurs like myself, I use a high yield savings account to save my tax money for quarterly things. And then after that, I actually have extra money left over. So that's like one thing I will tell freelancers to do is like open a high yield savings account, put your quarterly tax savings in there. And I'll use like, you know, Sitbank for that recommendation. But at the same time, I love credit unions, but I don't have any affiliate links for credit unions, but I'll still tell my followers like, hey, credit unions are great though. So if you find a local one or an online one, sign up with those instead. Like I do my best to promote affiliate links, but there's always that ethical line that I feel like I cannot cross. So at the same time, I probably hurt myself that way, but I can't like in like, you know, I can't sleep at night knowing it's like, oh, yeah, I'm morally only, like I'm only pumping affiliate stuff. I don't want to do that. I want to also give them other options. It's hard to get people's trust. And once you break their trust, it, like you can't really go back. So you're better. It's like the I don't know if you saw the Michaela whole like false slash thing that happened on TikTok. Like, I don't know, months ago. Basically, she was using like a like a mascara wand and was saying, oh, this is just mascara when it was clearly like fake lashes. Mm -hmm. So like. It's not really saying oh, what you're, you know, but yeah. anyway, people are pissed off about it and they, she lost a lot of followers and a lot of people are mad about it. But I mean, it's, it's also when you get that big, what do you expect? But yes, in theory, you should be not 
monetizing every single thing if you want to retain the trust of your audience. Right. Yeah. And if there are things that don't even have affiliate programs, but you really love to in- to use that product, you know, still recommend them out because that's going to give you good feedback and good reviews from your readers or from your, you know, followers. But at the same time, you can also look into reaching out to that company for a sponsored partnership since they don't have an affiliate partnership and see where you align there. So that's another way I make money are sponsored partnerships. And those are through my Instagram. Um, a lot of them like may have an agreement that we also repost it to TikTok or Pinterest because of the video content there as well, um, or on YouTube shorts. But at the same time, I'll add like an additional thing for an additional fee, of course, like, hey, we can feature this in a newsletter and then feature certain mentions of you every week in the newsletter, you know, different resources that they have, stuff like that. And then I've done sponsored posts on my blog. So I recently did one for a company called Lunafi. It's like an automated way to keep track of like all your finances, including your taxes for both W-2 and 1099. So if somebody works like a full-time job and they're a freelancer and taxes are really like hard to figure out quarterly or what you'll owe, come tax time. It's a great app. Anyway, I digress. I'm not an affiliate for them. I just did the sponsor thing for them and I I really like their app, but I did a sponsor blog post for them and included, uh, I think an email blast, a tweet, like an Instagram story. That was it. And that was $5,000. So that was a pretty good, you know, kickback. And it was just like me writing a blog post about a tool that I already used. So it was, Mm -hmm. it was pretty sweet. And then other ways I make money are through like my course. I have the launch your side hustle course. I've done webinars and workshops in the past. I haven't done one for a while just because they take a lot of energy to do, but you can also set them up to be like on demand after that and people can buy them, which I still have people that purchase my workshops. Um, I also sell like digital products around the things that I do, like blogging, you know, the courses as well. They're just like guides that um, as I figure things out, I create like a guide for it. And then if somebody wants to purchase it to help them figure it out, that's great. Um, Another way that I would make money is I did a lot of virtual speaking arrangements. So I spoke for like Market Watch last year, but it was like just a little thing on my social media. But then I spoke at the Plutus Awards. I've yet to do an in-person panel or anything. So it's They're kind of so funny. They're so fun. They're I really know. Because oh, I got really man. into like virtual speaking during the pandemic. I did like a FinCon speech as well, but it was online. And it's like, it's not the same. I know it's not the same. And it's like, I have horrible stage fright in person. So I don't know if I could ever do in-person speaking I would like there's to try a lot of anxiety though. for sure like I I so I did two one was more of an intimate setting think of a comedy space like that's how intimate it was and, and whatever and then the other one was more of like a huge panel at like a conference and the contrast between being on this huge stage right you sit in those huge thing you know with the microphone the whole setup the mediator and all that stuff like it's super fun but I was sweating the entire time like I'm glad I wore a tank top because I was I was fucking dripping sweat it's so nerve-wracking oh yeah I'd be dripping sweat too I would yeah I have like this thing where I have to like nervously pee too so I would have to probably pee the whole time (laughs) the same way oh my god it's so terrible but it's funny too because I feel like I I have the nervous pee tick and then I sit in the bathroom and I'm like I don't even have to pee like nothing's happening I just like I'm like fuck right yeah and it's like all the time and it makes it worse after that (laughs) yeah oh my god but yeah like in-person speaking is something I've yet to try I do want to try it I was thinking about speaking at FinCon this year like on a panel but and then another way is like I consult with other bloggers I haven't done this for a while since my writing like workload has gotten so large but I used to consult with bloggers to help them get their blog started you know target certain keywords help them reach out to people as well as like 
kind of do audits on how their SEO, like internal and external SEO. And then some people would reach out to me for Pinterest consults and like little Pinterest audits. So I would look at their profile and see what they even need to do on their profile and the pins that they're creating to basically generate more traffic to their website. Good to know, though, because I may hit you up then because I, I only know one other person who's like an SEO friendly person. She's a course and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you can get it right from the source, I don't mind paying for, for quality people. You know how it is. But Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so we obviously talked about like blogging and the different streams of income and entrepreneurship and all that stuff. But I want to pivot to remote work, right? Because that's like your that's your latest like and greatest thing. And you have the podcast. So like you got into remote work because you were able to negotiate before the pandemic happened, right? You weren't kind of grandfathered where you were grandfathered in, right? So I was like in my career, I was remote like from the first job that I started. It was so all the jobs that I've worked at have either been hybrid remote or fully remote. Um, So I was pretty familiar with remote work and I had that kind of experience. But my first fully remote job was in 2016. Even though the job I had before that, I basically swung fully remote when I wanted to because they didn't really ask so many questions. But I wasn't like they could still call me in the office one week if they needed to. But it still was like mostly fully remote where like I could go anywhere I wanted to. But I would still need to be reachable and like have a way to come into the office that month or something. Um, But my first fully remote job was for a government contracting company. And I was systems analyst for them. Um, and their entire company was virtual, which was cool. It was the first company I worked like that for. Then after that, I got laid off again. So after that, I worked for a company called TDK Technologies, which was a contracting company. They contract your services out to other companies. So the contract was for MasterCard. And I it was a great way to get my foot in the MasterCard, even though I was called like a contingent worker there. And how that program starts is like you work for them for two years but during that time if you ever find any internal positions there you want to apply for or if they approach you for a job like as an employee there you're able to take it and that's how I kind of got my foot in the door and they offered me a position as an employee there about a year in and as TDK I was a hybrid remote worker but then when I was hired on to MasterCard I was mostly fully remote I came in like once a day every now and then but then I negotiated fully remote work right before the pandemic because we were moving so I had to negotiate it for that move because either way I'd have to update my tax forms I told them about our move to Washington I talked to my manager I told him like here's all the data here's all the stuff that I pulled myself from the data like I'm in charge of pulling anyway for all like employees um, productivity data from this ticket dating data system we had to use So I pulled all this data that of like shows my own productivity. It's like, here's the stuff that I've done already mostly remote. So this isn't going to change. Like our working relationship won't change. We continue with our one-on-one meetings. I had to sign a paper though that said if there was a mass layoff that I wouldn't be like protected or something. I'm like, either way, I'm not protected. So whatever. Um, But then I made sure that they included that like updated contract to make sure remote work, fully remote work was in that. Because, and I, that contract was like right when the pandemic started, because I thought, I'm like, they're going to make me maybe come back like fully. I was like, because it's like two weeks, the pandemic. Uh, like back then, I thought it was mm-hmm. going to be like two weeks. Everyone did. So I'm like, oh, uh, I want to make sure this is my contract because like I don't want something to happen after this pandemic and then them, them change stuff. So like I had them put the remote work in that contract. And that's when I, you know, was 100% fully remote living in a different state. But most of the time, everybody else was too there weird timing but then after that they did have a return to office and everyone there came back like two to three days a week but it took a long time like even when I came back and visited last year the office was a ghost town there was like my own team members said like oh we only came in for like this basically because you came to visit I was like that's funny so the return to office still probably wasn't working but it's also a global company a ton of people work remote 
I don't understand why higher up management and executives call for a return to office. I mean, besides the real estate money that they probably, you know, need for the company, because they work remote more than anyone else. They're traveling all the time, working from their laptops in airports from different locations. So it's like, mm, that's so funny because you guys work remote all the time. Why would <laughs> like you think we don't know that? It's probably like a control <laughs> thing. Like, you oh, know, yeah. they want to keep eyes on people. And I mean, camaraderie is something that like I struggled to build rapport with my new team because I started a new role when the pandemic happened and I was working remote for the first time. Yeah. Like it is difficult to make friends like deep, deep connections when you're not physically together. But also like I saved a ton of money. Like I was eating great. Like things were it was good. Like so I don't understand the reasoning for it either. And I came from real estate. So I saw those numbers for how much they were paying for commercial properties. But um yeah, who knows? I'm, I'm sure the workers are going to win in this push for return to office yeah. because like, I don't like if when, I, when I talk to people like other stuff and people reach out to me like, oh, I saw this position. I think you'd be good for it. Are you considering it? I'm like, is it remote? And they're like, no, they want you five days a week. I'm like, I would maybe consider hybrid, but hell no, am I not doing five days in an office and commuting? No way. There's no way. In, there's no way in hell. Right. Oh, my God. I went for a job interview. And it was for a company called Gaia. If anyone has ever heard of that company, it used to be like, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, they flew me out to Colorado for this interview. It was a day long interview with like, I don't know, like five different interviews with all these different teams. And I left, I met with the CEO towards the end of the day, which is like a very cringy situation where he was asking me about my life. Like, oh, do you have any kids? Um, like, how, what does your husband do? And I was like, well, this is what my wife does. We have no kids. And then he got very strange about the wife thing. He's like, oh, you should meet our design manager. She also has a wife. I'm like, okay. And we both look at him like, <laughs> just let him leave the room. It's, it's the older so mentality. <laughs> they don't necessarily do it to be malicious or do it out of harm. It's just like they're trying to cover their asses. So like like for people who like try not to be racist, they're like, like oh my God, like I have my, you should meet my one black friend. Like, oh my God, my one black <laughs> yeah. friend. And you're like, you just made, you threw yourself out by saying that. Like you don't need to say like, we're just human beings. Like I get it, but I don't. Like just, just stop. Yeah. And like with that job, it seemed really cool. It was for a data analyst position. I'd be doing stuff like, that I didn't necessarily do before and I'd be learning new things and it was a really cool office like the thing that got me is I walked in through the front door and there's just this giant amethyst that was like three times the size of me and I was like I love this place but that's, that was like my bias them. there for a second <laughs> and then like I you know it was one of those it was you know Gaia had a similar kind of setup in their office as like the first startup that I worked for and I kind of knew then like I had just a feeling I'm like uh startups kind of suck and I don't want to work for another one and then one of the questions I had was like hey can I work remote since I'm I don't live in Colorado and they're like no we would like you to relocate here and most of our employees work five days a week but it's so funny because one of the managers I was supposed to meet with that day was working from home I was like okay but some people can and I was just like I was like I'm really looking for remote work here for a benefit you know we could still relocate here but when I'm when we're here though I would like at least maybe half the week and they're like no we're really strict with the five days a week and I was like that's not gonna do it for me sorry that's like that alone you know I was still kind of considering it even with the startup like feel even with the cringiness from that CEO because I liked Colorado you know because we wanted to move to either Colorado or Washington I was like we'll find a different way to move fully remote sorry (laughs) The hard thing is how do you convince people who've gotten back time to like live their lives and also save money to live their lives, right? Like I used to do my laundry on my lunch break and eat my lunch at the same time and like 
call my mom and like I did things that I wasn't able to do so how can you justify someone coming back in and spending money and like their entire life now becoming work again like when they've already got a taste of freedom like it's not gonna work oh, like, yeah. it just, it's not. right I mean like in the beginning of my career when I was working those more hybrid positions the way that I actually got more remote work was my grandpa was living with us so most of the time when I grew up it's like multi-generational you know people in my household where it's like my grandparents my parents like maybe my aunts and my grandpa was really sick at the time so my mom needed help taking care of him since she administered a surgery center so she was like tied to a building most of the time but I had the ability it's like okay I can work remote so that's when I first started asking like hey I need to work remote to help my mom do this like in a caregiver capacity that was when I got the least questions about it because like I asked before that for like hey I would like to work remote more often because I live really far from this and I was spending a lot of time taking the metro back and forth and just like a lot of time on commute that way so I'm like I can get more done working remote and they they still let me but it was like so many more questions asked around it versus like hey I have this life thing happening and I think it's just because they can't like maybe because it was like a health thing in your family and they don't want to like make it over complicated or like make them liable in any way I don't know why but that was like a way that I really got into it and I think that's great because like people that are caregivers at home you know, maybe may not be able to take on certain jobs because they can't get remote work or people that are disabled or maybe someone who's going through a transition and they don't want to like, you know, put themselves in danger. Like if they worked in a state like Texas, you know, and they're going through transition and they have to be visible to everyone through that when there's like a very bad political climate. So I'm wondering now that we're talking about like being able to negotiate that remote work factor for people who already have jobs or even finding remote work. Do you have any tips for that? Like, I know you mentioned something before where you were like, instead of saying, hey, I want remote work because I want work-life balance and like I spend all this money and like kind of making it so it's like your problems are their problems and they don't really care. You structure it as like, hey, this is all the good work I've done remotely. This is the data, right? Like presenting a case. How would you recommend people negotiate that as well as like for people who are looking to do a full transition into remote work into a new company? Do you have any tips for that as well? Yeah. So like when you're at your current employer, right now, some employers don't have a strict remote work policy still. And it depends on like team to team, manager to manager. So if you and your manager have like a good, you know, thing going and you have proven yourself in the past to be kind of an overachiever, you can pull that data. Like if you use a ticketing system or anything that shows like your past performance if there's been emails maybe mailed out to your manager too saying like hey this person really helped me out with this I'm so you know grateful for them like put this on your radar kind of thing because managers of other teams will do that and you can kind of gather everything just so you have it set up a one-on-one with your manager being like hey I'd like to just set up a one-on-one to talk about my future at this company or just talk about a couple of options that I see in my current working arrangements and then set up that time go through all the things like tell them like hey you know, let's say a company has like work from home days and they're hybrid. This is going to be easier for you. So be like, hey, so I work from home already three days a week. This is the work that I've done while working from home. So versus like before, if they have a thing to show before where you were working in the office all the time. So like if you were at a company where it was like pre-pandemic, you're in the office all the time and you have like the two to compare, you can be like, here's my in-office data of the work that I did. And here's my out-of-office remote data that I did. Your remote data will probably be better anyway because they kind of like dish out a ton of work to people over the pandemic. I feel like people were so overworked during the pandemic. That's why I quit my job. I was like, I was so stressed to the point that I was like crying before and after work. I've never had that before. Like I was like, I can't. Oh, (laughs) I was crying through work. It was horrible. Yeah. So like, or just any data you have to show your performance on your team. 
present that to your manager be like here is like this track record that i've shown working remotely and i would like to request fully remote and you can say that either as like if you are moving somewhere which here's a little tip if you are moving somewhere i hope no managers are listening to this right now <laughs> but some companies i've known someone to do that has done this where they asked if they could move but they said that it was because they were moving for a spouse's job so they're asked like can i become fully remote because we're moving to this state for my spouse's job and i would really still want this job and they've done that where they have approved it and they didn't ask her for any like evidence so that's like the one person that i know that did that i'm like oh that's pretty cool that's a smart idea um <laughs> i don't like recommend that you're <laughs> lying but i mean if you're able to get away with it just do it because i mean like fuck them like they take a bunch of shit from you so whatever but I mean, like you could say, hey, I would like to request fully remote, but I'm, you know, staying in the state. I will be available for like monthly meetings if I need to come in. Um, I can come for any quarterly things that we need to do with like stakeholders or if you are somewhat face to face with like if you work in product or the business side and stuff like that. You know, I've worked on IT and tech side. So a lot of like there's very little face to face in what I did. But like just basically presenting that data and really presenting the case of how you want remote work so just like how you are when you're negotiating for salary you're explaining why you deserve it so you're explaining why you deserve remote work you can also talk about it like i want to prepare myself for the future of work and remote work is a big part of that i also want to make sure that future opportunities don't bar me from those opportunities because i don't have this remote like experience because i want to be able to show future companies like hey i can work fully remote and do a great job and i also want to be a part of the way the labor market will change as remote work grows because remote work has like seen a takeoff since the pandemic. And now it seems like to level out as like a hybrid thing, but there's still so many more remote first companies and virtual only companies that are, you know, being created every day. Like the new wave of companies are remote first. You know, you don't want to be taking yourself out of the running for that. And I think some managers, depending on who they are, will see that too and be like, okay, um, let's try this out. You can also do a trial period. Like, hey, I, I'm um, asking you to do this trial period for like three months and we can see how that goes and then go from there. That's a good suggestion. Yeah. I really like that. And then for new jobs. So usually, let's say you're negotiating your salary, all the good stuff. Um, usually at that stage, though, if you don't know if it's fully remote or not, you know, you should have probably asked a little bit sooner. I saw this stupid article on CNBC about this manager who said, these are the questions that turned me off during interviews. And it was like in the introductory interview, don't talk about pay. Don't talk about your remote work. Don't talk about anything you want. Oh, but it's that's like so fucking stupid i'm not gonna waste my fucking time if you're only paying 50k right. like you know i mean well no shade to that salary either but like if you're making six figures and you're thinking you're gonna make a lateral move or at least a like an upgrade like you need to know that right off the bat so you're not wasting anyone's right. time exactly like you should ask in the introductory interview and that's where you should ask and there's actually some states that require the manager to like let you do that because or to tell you like their budget and stuff i can't remember what states it is but like you know in certain states where they have the employers are required to post a salary range well new york yeah. is like right there's like tons of states yeah. that are complete pay transparency but there's other states where it's not required in the job listing but it's required upon request so um i can't remember which state it is but on salary transparent street they'll have a map up soon and you guys can look at it but like for that you know bringing it up in introductory interviews like hey um what is the salary range for this position what is the budgeted salary range for this position and then you can ask other things like what is your remote work policy i mean those are fair things to ask and if it's a manager who that turns off then i wouldn't want to work with that manager anyway right and then like when you're talking about all these things 
in that introductory interview when they're like, oh, it's hybrid only. It's like, well, I would really like to discuss, you know, fully remote or full week remote and I could still be available for meetings. That part where it's like you're still available for meetings or you're available to come to the office if they request you to for a big meeting, that is seen as pretty valuable to them because it's like, okay, this person is still like in our reach that they can come in and be like present for whatever thing. And then also helps, I think, the manager make it the case like more appealing to their higher up or something like that. I've seen that like when you include that in it, it's it's more appealing to them. But just bringing those up in that introductory interview and if they're like, no, we have no work from home, which is like a thing that will often come up because there are jobs that are listed on LinkedIn that say remote and they'll say in the job listing that they're remote and then they'll do a bait and switch on those candidates and be like, oh, no. At this office, it's not fully remote. And it's like, okay, is there any way, like wiggle room? Can I have hybrid or fully remote? I need it because maybe I live too far. Maybe there is a family member I need to take care of. Maybe um, like I am like neurodivergent and I focus in a certain environment and I need that environment in order to perform a certain way and all of those things. And if they're still like, no, and it's like, well, maybe you might, it's up to you if you want to go to the next interview or not. But at the end, when you're negotiating for all those things like salary benefits you can also bring up like hey i saw in the job listing it says you have work from home days what do you feel about a fully remote work agreement or can we review the remote work policy and see how we can work this out like how can we create this agreement between both of us so it serves the both of us so you kind of like you know the same thing with salary like presenting it in this way you know being polite being grateful being excited but also talking about it on a business value kind of level of being like, this is valuable to me, but also I need to show the value to you. This is also really great, like if they can't match your salary requirements, so let's say you're negotiate for 100K, but they're like, we can only give you 85. We're like, all right, I'll be eager to accept this position for 85K if it includes a remote work, fully remote work arrangement. You could do something like that. I was gonna ask, like, would you take a pay cut if it's do that? Because I could see if, let's say, like I just was living in Austin and there's no income tax. So if I was making 85K, that means I'm keeping all of my money, you know, for and I'm working remote versus 100K being, let's say, in a New York office and I'm paying, I'm already paying 30 to 40% back between the, the you yeah. know, the, ta- the taxes on top of rent and stuff. So it's like, it, it would have been the same anyway. Like on an individual basis, that's up to them if they want to take a pay cut or not for it. They could also try like, hey, I know this job is hybrid starting out, but can we talk about maybe it becoming remote after three months? Like I like a trial period in the same way or starting out hybrid and be like, is there a chance that I can work remote in the future, like fully remote? And if they're like, yeah, that is a chance, you know, after you are able to be in the office with the team and show your performance, then, you know, you can be moved to fully remote. So a lot of the hybrid positions is going to be easier. But if you're at a company that, let's say, was fully remote during the pandemic and they asked for fully back in office like five days a week, it's going to be harder then because it's a little too fresh. But I've known people that still have like it's five days in the week, but they're still able to negotiate hybrid and then from there and they negotiate fully remote work it's really hard to go from five days a week to fully remote in that negotiation you're gonna have to do it like incrementally those are all great tips though I'm so glad I asked you I mean I'm now I'm like I'm not fully (laughs) open to working full-time but I've had a couple people like recently reach out to me with interesting things I'm like would I really want this and if I did like what would it look like so between the blog yeah. stuff you're telling me and the remote work stuff, I'm like, okay, like we're good. We we got we got some juice. And I know I know the audience that are listening to this are also gonna be appreciative of right, you're giving them like the entrepreneurial out, but also if they're like, you wanna do remote work at the same time, right? Kind of side hustle and full time thing, like this is what you can do. So I appreciate that. But 
as we wrap up this podcast, I was going to ask you more things about remote work, but I'm wondering because I know recently you're a quitter now, right? So you cut, you run, you know, to run your show yourself and you do all these different things. So I'm wondering as like a parting gift, do you have any suggestions for people who are thinking about quitting their jobs or like anything that maybe you weren't anticipating that is worse off or better off? Like, like anything you can, you know, kind of offer in terms of the quitter background or experience so far? Yeah. So when I quit my job, I planned to quit that job basically the beginning of the year. So that was last year. At that time, I was like, right before then, I was like, oh, I don't want to quit it right away. Like, we're still in the pandemic. I don't know what's going to happen. But then the beginning of last year, I had it. Like, I was crying through work every single day because people got became huge assholes during the pandemic, too. So I'm just like, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not a punching bag. Um, so I really worked hard to get my emergency fund, my wife and I's emergency fund, basically fully funded so we could cover ourselves for a year if something were to happen to her job as well. And then I was fortunate enough to get health insurance through her. Of course, if people don't have a a spouse to get health insurance through, you can use your marketplace in your state. So like in Washington, they do have some like some ones for like lower income people that you can apply for. But also they do have like free options, but you have to like meet a certain level of requirements. It's like 300 a month. So if if we had gone through the marketplace, it would have been like almost 800 a month for both of us, which sucks. But now we pay like 300 a month through her employer, which is great. Um, but that's one thing they're going to have to think about is health insurance when they quit and how that's going to look like. Your employer will offer you COBRA, but it is Terrible. extremely expensive. I would tell you not to go for that and just go for your health. I mean, like the state marketplace would probably be better anyway. And you can also look at private insurance. So like going on the Blue Cross Blue Shield website. And I think some state marketplaces will actually include the private insurances on there. They're more expensive, but they have better coverage. But I mean, now at most employers, they suck anyway, because health insurance has gone downhill over I the agree. years. Like I remember the beginning of my career, I had really good health insurance at companies and now they're just all trash. <laughs> so that was the things I, I thought about the most is like, how am I going to cover ourselves if all of our income streams kind of go away? And that's the emergency fund. I started with that emergency fund. I also invested as much as I could. I maxed out my 401k. I maxed out my Roth IRA. And then I got my income up in my business. I tried really hard to kind of boost that income in my business. And then I became an S Corp, which is like, I'm still an LLC for my business registration, but my tax I did the entity same thing. is an X Corp. Yeah. I don't really understand it, but that's what my lawyer told me to do. So I'm like, fine, we're just going to say yeah. what you do. We're just going to do that. Yeah. And so that means that the taxes pass through you instead of the business separately. So you save a ton on taxes. And I think it's why I got like a ton of taxes back last year after the whole tax, tax fiasco that we talked about. So I started working with this company to help me set up my S Corp. They set up my payroll. I got a good bookkeeping system. And so I set up payroll for myself to pay myself as like a W-2 employee for my own business. So then I had a way to like estimate how much I would actually be bringing in every month. But at the same time, like now some months I can't pay myself because I'm paying contractors, I'm paying my expenses, I'm making sure I'm setting enough aside for taxes. And then I also like, I don't, uh, I don't want to go below a certain amount in my business account anyway, just because of things. Because, you know, I'm still growing this business too. Well, it's smart. It's a smart thing to do, you know. Right. I'm still growing this business. So like, I still want to have money in there to invest for things, knowing that we're still okay with my emergency fund and my wife's income. But then other things like in the beginning, if you can either like move to full time at your full job before you quit, that could be a good option to at least keep some of those benefits as you are able to work on your business more. I do know a couple of people that are able to do that. And I've looked into that myself too, because it's like, that would be, you know, a little like less stress sometimes because I get like stressed really easily over the fact that it's like, I don't work for an employer that it's their responsibility to bring in the revenue. I could just, I get paid regardless. Yeah. And now it's like, I have to, I'm in charge of the revenue. I'm in charge of paying these other people and I'm in charge of paying myself. And that's a lot for me. So I've thought of part-time stuff too. 
being neurodivergent and having a gazillion ideas and constantly running all over the place on top of having to be the salesperson, the marketing person and legal, like it's a lot. So I totally understand. And I've, I think a lot of us have the same thought just because we're like, wow, we took for like full-time work for granted for so long when it was so easy, you know, but part of the reason we left was because the challenge, we wanted more. I, I love all that. I love that you've shared all that. I'm wondering, you know, as we wrap this up, where people can find you if they want to reach out to you or work with you or anything like that. Yeah, they can find me on ilikedabble.com. That's for like the whole free resource platform is tons of articles. If you want to start a side hustle, get into remote work, get your finances together, whatever you want to do. Find me as I like to dabble blog on Instagram. I like to dabble everywhere else. And then the remote work bestie podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to listen to this again because obviously I'm getting into blogging. So I'm going to like, you know, take some notes yeah. and do all that. But I'm sure also the my audience is definitely going to appreciate both sides of things, like I said before, about entrepreneurship and, you know, kind of embracing the remote work culture while we still have it and it continues to expand. So thank you so much for doing the work that you do and for coming on and, you know, your time and everything. Thank you. This is so fun. <laughs>